went for a job interview and I didn't get the job. I wasn't interested in feedback. I wasn't interested in people's justification for not giving me the job when I knew I was the best person for that job. And to a certain extent, and that's not being arrogant, that is being me. That is being wedded to my idea that I can do anything I've set my mind to. This, this, this amazing platform, this amazing role did not come to me sat at home uh, gazing. It came to me because I got into action. I believed that I was and I believe that I am the best person to do this role. You know, because I was just as qualified, just as capable, able as anybody else who stepped into this space before. When I was asked a question at Hustings as to, and I was one of four, and I was asked the question, if you are successfully elected as Deputy Vice President, how will you promote equality, diversity and inclusion? And uh, thinking about it, my answer was... I, Stephanie Boyce. I, Stephanie Boyce is the current head of the Law Society, which is an independent body that governs all solicitors across England and Wales. In its entire history, she is the 177th president, yet she's only the first person of colour and only the sixth ever female president of the Law Society. In today's interview, we spoke about her journey from being born in a single parent household on a council estate and how she's managed to elevate to the position that she's in now. And you really, really get a sense of her determination, her hard work, her grit, her work ethic that have landed her to the position that she's in now. So, without further ado, this is 1000 Voices in here. We have I, Stephanie Boyce. Hi there, Stephanie. Thank you so much for coming to 1000 Voices. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Great. Good to hear. Good to hear. And, um, so I came across your profile um, when I was doing some research and I was, well, I'm not necessarily in the legal profession or in that field myself, but I was very, very inspired by what you've managed to do. And I thought it'd be great to get you on board for you to share your journey, share your lessons learned. Um, and I'm sure that our community of listeners are going to find your journey as inspiring as I found it. So to begin with, do you mind just talking a bit about your upbringing, you know, where you grew up and what it was like? Oh, absolutely. Can I say, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to speak with A Thousand Voices. Um, uh, so my life journey began in Ellsbury, Buckinghamshire. Um, and Ellsbury, for me, you know, uh, is a place where I would come back to time and time again. Um, so for me, Ellsbury in the 1970s, when I was growing up there, was a, a small, sleepy um, uh, market town, you know, with little ethnic uh, diversity compared to the town that it is today um, and I still uh, or up until uh, last year I still lived in Ellsbury um, I've since moved out of Ellsbury but but not a million miles away but my journey began you know uh, I grew up with the sounds of injustices ringing in my ears as I could see uh, you know events globally domestically uh, evolving around the world um, you know, people ex uh, uh, struggling to exercise their rights, uh, people having little or no rights. And that's what inspired me to become a legal professional, a solicitor. But looking back, you know, um, my grandparents, my grandfather was the first to come to uh, the United Kingdom uh, in the early 1960s. And he came in search of, uh, as a, you know, faith, hope and greater opportunities. He'd be followed by my grandmother, um, and he'd be followed by his children, one of whom was my mother, and they would come uh, as my grandfather could afford to send for them, as, as you know, the term, uh, the colloquial term, you know, to send for the kids. 
Um, and there was so there was a space of five years, um, uh, five years be between my mother uh, uh, coming behind her mother, and then another five years between my uncles following uh, my mother and her siblings. Um, and mother came to the United, the United Kingdom in 1967 um, uh, uh, from St. Vincent and the Caribbean uh, to join my grandparents. And my father, who she would meet in the early 1970s on the streets of Ellsbury. Ellsbury's got a lot to answer for, Tevin. <laughs> but um, uh, he came from Barbados in 1964. Um, and again, very much the same, you know, um, in search of a better life. Um, you know, um, uh, and, and to honour those responsibilities that certainly my father had, you know, uh, uh, still in Barbados. Um, but, you know, as I said, living in Ellsbury for a number of years, as I did, you know, um, uh, and, you know, uh, at the age of 12, uh, we emigrated to America after my parents had parted company at the age of four. So I grew up in a single parent household on a council estate, um, you know, in a low socioeconomic position. But I always had a dream, and that dream was to become, as I say, a lawyer, you know, um, to really help the voiceless, as I could see it then, to speak, to hear their voice. That's very interesting. And you said something very interesting in your intro there just now, when you said that you were born in the 1970s. I think you termed it as the, the sounds, um, to the sounds of injustice. Was you aware of that when you was growing up or is that something you came to realise later on looking back retrospectively? I think a bit of both. You know, I grew up in a, in a household where very much, you know, when I look back now, you know, um, the West Indian household was very much, you know, it was a, it was a gathering point. You know, um, even when I think about those house parties, you know, when uh, my mother had a few of those, not many, but, you know, all the furniture would get cleared out of the living room. You know, the sound system would move in. But our home on a Sunday was the focal point for family, for friends. Um, and mother's door, even though we didn't have much, was always open. Um, you know, uh, you know, it was somewhere that people could come and exchange their stories of home, uh, you know, uh, reminisce listening on the radio, trying to get that, you know, um, there was a chap on a Sunday, I think round about four o'clock, who used to play, you know, reggae music, because um, we didn't have that on TV, you know, uh, very much. You know, we had, I think, three channels up until I think 1984, you know, when we got Channel 4, you know. So to hear reggae music, you know, living in rural Buckinghamshire, as it was then, you know, we didn't have the food. There wasn't that you couldn't pop down to the supermarket and buy some um, salt fish or, you know, um, or, or jerk seasoning or any of that. You know, you had to go to London or, or another city, Birmingham or so forth. Um, and that was done every so often. And normally somebody was going and, you'd you know, family would say, can you bring me back this? Um, but this chap on the radio on a Sunday, we'd all gather around the radio listening to those the, those reggae tunes. And he had this lovely, deep, soulful voice. Um, but as a child, you know, kind of being on the peripherals, listening to those conversations, I heard about why people had left home to come to Britain. I heard about the events that were unfolding, you know, um, in this country as well, you know, um, around, you know, um, uh, uh, the miners strike, you know, having to shut the curtains, you know, turn the electric, uh, turn the lights off at a certain time. I heard about, um, you know, boycotts um, of countries, you know, sporting boycotts of countries um, who perhaps were not, uh, 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 you know, immersing themselves in equality, 
um, and justice, you know, for uh, for their citizens. Um, and I think that's what you know absolutely pipped my interest. Perfect. I, you know, as you're speaking there, I can um, even though I wasn't in the house, I, I feel like I'm reminiscing myself dancing around <laughs> the house, listening to some reggae music as well. <laughs> but that's perfect. Thank you for that. So, so you've gone to the US. You've come back. What, what happened after that? You by then, I suppose you said you wanted to become a lawyer. By then, I suppose you knew you wanted. By then, I'm, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to get into law. How did you go from there into your first trainee well, position as a trainee? I mean, yeah, absolutely. As I said, you know, the US would have a lasting impression upon me. Um, you know, I hadn't known poverty like that. I hadn't known injustices like what I saw there. So I would live there for six years. I'd graduate from high school. And a day, a few days or so after graduating from high school in 1991, I was back here uh, in the United Kingdom because this is where I wanted to study. This is where I wanted to qualify. But, you know, I didn't have, and we didn't have the internet. Now one, you know, uh, today I was Googling how to bleed the radiator. You know, um, the, the internet was not as uh, prevalent as it is today. Um, you know, one couldn't Google like, you know, where do I find uh, to go to to get a loan funding uh, to do, um, you know, to qualify as a solicitor or, or to do, uh, you know, as it is now the solicitor's qualifying exam. But of course it was the legal practice course before that. So, and I didn't have those networks, those family family networks, those social networks, to be able to ask those questions. I, they weren't there for me. Um, so I basically had to guess my way and find my way through uh, lots of things. I applied to university, but I couldn't get into university because my American qualification at that time was not recognized. So I had to go back and do uh, an access to higher qualification. And through speaking to people, you know, I then got to learn different things. And I did that part time for two years. Um, and when I finished doing that, I then went on to uh, apply to university and I started off part time whilst working at British Rail. And I thought, why am I doing this part time? This is what I want to do. You know, you know, this is what I'm destined to do. So. I then uh, enrolled uh, full time uh, in London at London Guildhall University to study law full time. Uh, and in September 1999, I, uh, uh, 1996, sorry, I packed up my worldly goods uh, in my car and I headed to Marle End uh, to take up my life as a full time student uh, and to begin my three year course. Um, I had secured, um, uh, I did get a, a, a grant from, a maintenance grant from the local authority. Um, I did go at a time where I did not have to pay tuition fees. So I recognise that I was privileged in that respect, you know, compared to today, where you have to pay tuition fees, where you, students are being asked to study in the current climate as the pandemic as it is now, um, and that they have to support themselves if they don't come from uh, a family that's able to do that for them. Um, so I recognised that I had a lift up um, and subsequently was able to go on to borrow a large loan uh, from a bank uh, to complete the legal practice course. And I remember people saying to me when I had come out of law school, people saying to me, your loan, your debt is more than my mortgage, you know, um, and, you know, Maybe not the same today, but I would suspect that actually there's still that's still quite true for many people that the debt they amass from going to, to university, going to uh, law school to 
qualifies a solicitor or a lawyer is you know um is is is, is, is bigger than some people's mortgages but um i had a dream and a burning desire burning passion uh, to become uh, a solicitor and i was just determined to succeed nothing was going to get in my way I was, I was going to touch on that because you seemed like you're, you were very, very determined growing up. I mean, for most people, a lot of people, if they were to, you know, you've come back from the US and then you've been told, okay, my qualification isn't going to work. You need to work for an extra two years part-time and then apply again. That's like, it's a major setback. And it would make sense if somebody was to hear that and be like, okay, let me explore a different path. But you knew what you wanted and you went for it. Would you attribute that determined kind of, I don't know what you call it, that doggedness, the, attitude to your upbringing or where, where did that come from well absolutely you know i was brought up in a household where you know we were told that we could be anything you know it, it, you know that you don't give up you know um and i still hold true i still hold on to those uh, uh, those ideas today that you know um and, and perhaps later we'll talk about the four times the four attempts it took me to uh, be elected as deputy vice president to go on to become president as I am today. But there is something, if you want something bad enough, you know, if you have a dream, a desire, and it's keeping you awake at night, you know, it's all you can think about. You've got to go for it. You know, I, I once heard somebody say, if you don't bring your dream, give your dream birth, if you don't give it life, You'll be busy watching somebody else on, you know, all those other social media platforms doing it ahead of you. And the other thing that I didn't do is, and I'm not advocating that people should do this, because I think people have to get to a point that they do everything that's right for them. But I absolutely believe if you are on a road, if you are on a path, um, and that path that, you know, if you're traveling down a road and that road is not working out for you, right, you get off of that road and you try a different one. You know, but I'm absolutely wedded to the idea that every de delay, every detour, every obstacle has got me to where I am today. And I'm absolutely grateful for the to the people who said no to me in my life <laughs> um, because I am here, you know, because of them. Um, I don't and didn't take um, uh, feedback. You know, if I went for a job interview and I didn't get the job, I wasn't interested in feedback. I wasn't interested in people's justification for not giving me the job when I knew I was the best person for that job. And to a certain extent, and that's not being arrogant, that is being me. That is being wedded to my idea that I can do anything I've set my mind to. That's perfect. Do you remember what your first position, your first business as a trainee, what that was like and any challenges that you had at that point in time? Well, again, I was absolutely blessed. So what happened was my, I think, so basically I went to university um, and in my second year, because I didn't have those connections, as I said, I didn't know, you know, that I was supposed to, uh, you know, apply to the legal practice course when I was supposed to do that, get a training contract, none of that. I turned up to law school with no training contract. Again, not so dissimilar to others, but quite a few people already had those training contracts. But what happened was, is that I came across an organisation called the Windsor Fellowship um, and I got a period of uh, uh, work experience. I was um, able to go and undertake work experience at the then Lord uh, Chancellor's Department um, and I was able to uh, uh, travel to the House of Commons with um, uh, uh, Jeff Hoon, who was um, uh, the uh, uh, 
uh, gosh, she was a permanent uh, undersecretary, I think, at that time. Um, but I was able to travel with him to the House of Commons and see and sit and see how those things worked. But equally, I guess that was, you know, a bit of my taste for legislation, for lawmaking, really in action. Um, and then I started to understand that I had to apply for a training contract. I came home one Easter. My father said to me, have you got a training contract? And by that time, Tevin, I had applied to, it seemed like 400 and something places. It probably was only 100, 150, maybe a bit less. But it seemed like a lot. And in those days, it wasn't an email. It was pen and paper or I used to type oh, it. Wow. Yeah. And you literally went to the post box, put it in the post box and sent it. You know, none of this online filling form, or if it was there, I wasn't aware of it. Um, and uh, I came home one Easter. My father said to me, have you got uh, a training contract? And I said, no. And I told him, you know, whatever. And he said, give me what you've got. And my father worked at the local magistrate's court at that time. And he began to hand out my uh, 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 application, CV, whatever it was. Um, and I subsequently got a call from a firm located in Ellsbury, less than a 10 minute walk away from where I was living with my grandfather at that time. And, um, and I was invited to go in for an interview. And it turned out that the young lady who had the training contract, who had secured the training contract two years in advance, her husband had now got a job and was being relocated. So it meant she could no longer take up that training contract. So here was this training contract now being presented in my lap. Um, I mean, obviously, I had to go through an interview. But when I got there, it turned out uh, uh, that, you know, I had been to the same law school as uh, uh, Mr. Richard Keefley, who interviewed me, who was then the senior partner, the principal at Howard and James Solicitors in Ellsbury. Um, and, you know, we had so much in common. Uh, he gave me uh, or, or uh, gave me the training contract. Um, and I'm forever grateful to uh, Mr. Richard Keefley for giving me that opportunity. That's perfect. And at that position in time, did you know that you wanted to become the president of the Law Society? Is that or was that something you learned, you know, later on in your career? And what was that trajectory like from the that first position as a trainee to the where you are now, the president of the Law Society? <laughs> no, I mean, Tevin, I didn't. I, you know, it, it probably was about twenty. 13, 20, maybe 2014, that 2014, 2015, that I'd even thought about, you know, becoming president. So what happened was my training contract was 2002, 2002. I left my training contract with no job to go to because I wanted to become a litigator. Um, and unfortunately, by the time I left, there was no jobs in the litigation department, uh, only conveyancing as the boom was then. So I left um, and I was cutting gardens for a time. Um, and then I took up my first job in 2004 in Huntingdon as a litigator. But within two years, I had been made redundant um, twice um, as, the, uh, as, you know, uh, the cuts to public funding started to bite. Um, so I came back um, and I got my first in-house job in 2004 with the General Counsel of Bar. Um, and I have practised in-house uh, from since uh, 2004 until I became Deputy Vice President in 2019. But to answer your question, I got involved in the Law Society in 2004 um, and, um, and then again in 2008 um, and was elected to the Law Society Council in 2013 and uh, within about two years or so of being on council decided that actually 
that's when I decided that I wanted to become uh, president. Um, uh, so then I put myself forward for the first time in 2015. And after four attempts, I was successfully elected in 2019 as deputy vice president. Um, and then you're on a th uh, an automatic trajectory to become president um, as I am now. That's very interesting. You know, it sounds like you've had a lot of setbacks throughout your career. I mean, you, you saw what you made redundant two times in two years. You had to apply four times to become the deputy vice president of the law. And from, the, I'm assuming, coming from a non-legal background, from deputy vice president, then the next step from there is then the president of the law society, I'm assuming, right? Vice president. And then... Right, vice president. But then it's a, it's a step you need to, you know, get to before you can get to the president of the law society where you are now. You've had your fair share of setbacks, I couldn't say. How have you managed to overcome those setbacks? Have you ever felt like very, very down? And have you managed, you know, have you managed to pick yourself up and overcome those? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, I see a sign when I drive past a certain church um, and uh, it quotes a passage from the Bible that talks about ships sink not because of, um, I think I've got this right, not because of the water that gets in them, but the water, you know, uh, uh, that surrounds it. Um, I think I possibly have got that right. But the point is, is that for me, the lessons is not in how many times I got knocked down, but in how did I get up? The point is, we've all faced obstacles. We've all faced, um, you know, setbacks in our life. Um, for some of us, it will make us stronger, more determined, more resilient. For others, we will allow it to keep us there. Um, and I was never going to be one of those persons to allow it to define me or to keep me there. So looking at the four attempts that it took me, uh, you know, um, I didn't listen to people. When people told me, Stephanie, go home and rest, you're embarrassing yourself now. You know, four, you know, if, you know, three attempts, you haven't done it. It's not going to happen. When people told me never in our lifetime will we see an ethnic minority, as, it, as they were calling it then, uh, become president of the Law Society of England and Wales. When people told me you'll get frustrated with the workers of this building, and people told me, and people told me, and people told me. And it's absolutely amazing, Tevin, how freely people will offer their advice. But just because somebody offers their advice is not doesn't mean that I have to take it, you have to take it. You have to know which advice to take and which advice to leave well alone. Um, and so when I think back as to some of those times, of course there were tears, of course there were disappointments, but you know, I'm one of these people that I absolutely believe in action. It didn't come to me, this, this, this amazing platform, this amazing role did not come to me sat at home uh, gazing it came to me because I got into action. I believed that I was and I believe that I am the best person to do this role, you know, because I was just as qualified, just as capable, able as anybody else who'd stepped into this space before. And I also believed in the power of visibility. It is important for me and others to be visible in this space, because as I said to you earlier, we must lift as we climb. But in doing so, we are making that crooked road a little straighter, you know, so that those who will come behind us, um, you know, whose, whose journey, whose path will be a little bit, you know, uh, smoother and better. For sure. 
and yeah, which I, I really do agree, uh, agree and resonate with what you're saying about the, the representation. Well, now you're the president of the Law Society, the first person of color to become the president of the Law Society, which is an amazing, an amazing achievement in of itself. And it's something that people are going to have, people are going to be looking up and going to be very inspired by, you know, your journey and your position where you are right now. It's that visible sort of representation that I think, I feel like we need to see a lot more of, um, not only in law, but just across every industry that visible representation with the law society can you just touch on now very briefly on who the law society are and maybe what some of your key areas of focus are as president of the law society right now absolutely so the law society is the professional body for representative body for solicitors um and we represent some two hundred thousand plus solicitors in the jurisdiction of england and wales um, and we are keen to promote excellence in the profession, uh, to be the voice of solicitors and to ensure um, and uphold the rule of law um, and ensure that the public as well uh, uh, understand uh, uh, our role um, as legal practitioners. So uh, uh, some of my priorities as president, so quite right, I am the 177th, the sixth female, the first black office holder and the first person of colour to hold this position as president in the Law Society's entire almost 200 year history. Um, so a remarkable achievement. And I'm absolutely, as I say, honoured, privileged to be in this space and absolutely blessed to be in this space. Um, so my priorities will focus around access to justice. You know, for me, legal rights mean absolutely nothing if you don't know when those rights are being taken away, or indeed you don't even know how to exercise those rights. And far too often, we come across individuals who don't know what their rights are. Um, and so, you know, um, I would like to see a greater emphasis around uh, public legal education, ensuring that our colleagues, our communities understand what their rights are, that they know how to exercise those rights, where to go to, um, to enforce those rights or even indeed exercise those rights. Um, and that they know about the justice system. So for me, about getting law taught in schools uh, so that we grow up with a greater understanding as we move from childhood to adulthood, that we grow up with a greater understanding of our justice system. Not when we're caught up in it, you know, because for me, that is potentially too late. Um, but, you know, we come to the justice system as a national treasure, revered as a national treasure, like our NHS. Um, because our justice system is revered around the world. People come to this jurisdiction of England and Wales to litigate because of the independence of our judiciary, you know, the fairness of our courts and the consistency of our judgments. So our citizens should know and learn about the justice system. Equality, diversity, inclusion and social mobility. All of those areas close to my heart. I absolutely believe in equity. I absolutely believe in equality of opportunity and that your background, your starting point should not define where you can go in life. So uh, uh, in-house, I'm the second in-house solicitor in almost 50 years to occupy this post. We know that colleagues are growing at an exponential rate going in-house from private practice, from firms. So, but I also know that the challenge of being an in-house practitioner is different from those challenges that one faces in private practice, in a firm. So uh, a greater focus on in-house colleagues, mental health and well-being. Um, again, 
uh, mental health and well-being, we've seen the impact that the pandemic has had on the last uh, uh, on our mental health and well-being in the last almost two years. But also before the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, as practitioners, we um, uh, have very at times very stressful jobs, very stressful roles, um, and so we need to take care of our mental health as we do our physical health and mindful of it um, and the impact you know, uh, uh, on ourselves and others um, if we don't look after ourselves. And of course, as we, you know, Brexit, as we exit, you know, as we've exited the European Union um, and thinking about uh, this jurisdiction, and as I say, people come here to litigate, um, reminding colleagues globally and domestically that this should be a jurisdiction, England and Wales should be a jurisdiction of choice, um, and we are still open for business. So, those are some of my key priority areas that I will focus on as president. Perfect. Let's touch upon diversity. You mentioned that as one of your key priority areas. Um, when you were talking about your, you know, your journey very early on, you spoke quite a bit about you not necessarily knowing or understanding what you needed to do. You know, you didn't know you had to you know, secure a training contract, for example, beforehand, things like that. Do you feel like, first of all, do you, do you feel like there is a lack of a massive lack of diversity within the legal profession and do you feel that maybe that lack of uh, what would you even call it maybe that that knowledge that lack of knowledge i suppose in the ways in which you, you should approach a career in legal in in law in the legal system do you feel like that plays a role in a lack of diversity so in terms of diversity what we do know from some of the statistics that we've managed to gather is that 63% of those entering the profession, i.e. at trainee level, are female. Um, and, you know, women now make up the majority of practicing solicitors at some 52%. Um, we know that 17.5% roughly are from a Black Asian minority ethnic background. 5% um, uh, identify um, from an LGBT plus background. Um, and around just under uh, 16% or so um, identify with a, um, a physical or mental health um, uh, issue. So in terms of diversity, when you look at Black Asian minority ethnic colleagues, we are probably on par with uh, the general population. What we do know is that 23% of our of, of partners in, in, in some of the top uh, uh, largest firms, excuse me, are have been privately educated. And that's some 7% of uh, against the general population. So we know that there is um, uh, that you know uh, social mobility and those who get into the profession and reach the top of the profession um, is not reflective of the general uh, population. So we know there's work to do. But what the underrepresentation comes in, uh, Tevin, is in the senior parts of the profession. So at the junior entry level, we are very diverse. But when you start to look at uh, the senior parts of the profession, and indeed the judiciary is, 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 you know, has this issue as well. We are not seeing diversity. You know, 31% of partners in private practice are female. Um, you know, 8% of partners in uh, uh, firms of, you know, 80 partners or more are from a black Asian minority ethnic background. And we know that that figure has only increased by 1% since 2014. So the issue is um, diversity or underrepresentation at senior levels of the profession, um, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, those who are coming into the profession or indeed those who are in the profession. 
Um, and of course, you build in other factors such as progression, such as work allocation, uh, uh, those who will stay in the profession um, and thrive in the profession, um, and those numbers um, start to abate. For sure. Um, you paint, paint a very startling picture when you put stats out like that, especially if there only been a 1% increase since 2014 in diversification and senior levels. It, well, you see, obviously, there's, there's work to be done there. But what I'd like to touch upon as well is, so you've, you've mentioned quite recently about during the pandemic um, how the general public have seen some encroachments on our, some of our liberties. Do you mind touching on maybe a few examples or some examples of that and why that be important for the everyday person to understand? Mm. Well, absolutely. So when we uh, uh, we saw the Prime Minister address the nation on the 23rd of March 2020, and he said words to the effect that I'm now giving the British people the instruction, the following instruction, you must stay at home. You know, who would have thought, Tevin, that one would have to think twice before stepping foot outside of your own front door and whether or not to do so, you would be breaking the law or to go and see a loved one, to travel to see a loved one. You know, all those sorts of sorts of things that we saw legislation and, and rules and regulations that were imposed upon us in, in the name of a public health emergency. Some of those legislation still remains on our books. Um, and some are, are, you know, with the police crime uh, and sentencing courts bill are, uh, uh, that's currently making its way through Parliament are, um, uh, are being drawn up to ensure that should we go through another pandemic, that we are better placed to deal. So such as remote juries. We don't current, currently have remote juries um, in England. Scotland has it, but not in England. Um, and that is for uh, your listeners, when I speak about remote juries, that is us, uh, uh, say we were individuals on a jury, we would be, as we are now, in our respective homes, listening to a trial, trying to decide the facts and the guilt or innocent innocence of that individual who is on uh, trial. Um, and we have a number of concerns around that because, you know, um, uh, uh, to be judged by your peers to be in the same room as your peers. So because we know that people, uh, uh, the human social creature aspect of us is that we work by looking into each other's eyes. You know, we pick up a lot of social cues from body language, facial expressions, looking at people um, and to uh, suggest that that can be done uh, uh, via a camera. Um, because, you know, I don't know, just as you don't know, who is in the room with us now? I can see you, you can see me. But can I honestly say there is nobody else in that room with you? Can you honestly say that there is nobody else in this room with me? And so we are concerned around, uh, uh, you know, the aspects of the jury system that may mean that, um, you know, how do we know that it's that juror who is, you know, the sanctity of the jury system, that that juror is coming to the conclusions by you know, individually um, and by themselves, as opposed to being uh, coached or, or aided by anybody else. So when I talk about some of the biggest encroachments, it's about, uh, uh, you know, our liberties. We were restricted from going outside of the boundaries of our properties, who we could communicate with, um, you know, um, and so forth. Who would have thought, Tevin, you know, five years ago, if you if somebody had said, Stephanie, 
you will have to wear a mask every time you go into a public building, every time you go onto public transport. I would have said, what for? <laughs> you know, um, so it's those sorts of things. <laughs> Although my mother tells me that she quite likes the notion of wearing a mask because it keeps her warm. <laughs> it does get cold in this country so <laughs> don't blame her it does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay so i want to reflecting back on your career and well in your life in general actually could you tell us about yeah describe one of your highest highs and one of your lowest lows hmm. my highest highs and my lowest lows are probably the same and that is in as much that you know the four attempts it took me to become so that successfully elected as deputy vice president um you know uh, as i say a remarkable space you know when i got the the call to say that you know i had done it um but the previous attempts you know to say that i hadn't done it um so um so hence why you know they are one and the same perfect okay and what advice would you give to somebody that's starting out in law to never ever give up you owe it to yourself you owe it to your future self to keep pushing because I believe that every single door is open if you push. You persevere until something happens. You push. That's perfect. And finally, before we move into our quickfire questions, what do you want your legacy to be? I have said and I continue to say that it is my intention to leave this profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. I'm very clear that, you know, it's got to be a shared ambition. It's, you know, with each and every one of us playing our part, um, because, you know, many voices make loud noise, but that's how we affect change. So my legacy is a profession that is genuinely accessible. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Okay. Great. So let's move into some quickfire questions. So I've got 10 questions here for you. We've got 20 seconds per question. So are you good Good to start? I'm ready to go. All right, let's go. Number one, what's your favorite movie? Uh, the Color Purple for, um, for its symbolism of, you know, imagery, but mostly because it reminds us to stop and smell the roses. Perfect. Second, what's your favourite book? Ah, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking by uh, Norman Vincent Peale, because it helps you develop a positive attitude, uh, because I absolutely believe, Tevin, that a positive attitude can truly change, transform your entire life, and this book speaks to that. I'll check it out. Thank you. Number three, name a song that you can never get bored of. Uh, Labby Safray's, you know, something inside so strong because my favourite line is the higher they build the barriers or their barriers, the taller I become. The more they refuse to hear my voice, you know, the louder I will sing. That's great. Number four, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Um, I'm not sure because I'm terribly picky with food. Um <laughs> probably mangoes or something <laughs> as you mangoes get older Kevin, you soon learn <laughs> yeah but as you get older you soon soon learn that the things that you could eat and drink before you can't so it's you know it's evolving <laughs> okay all right next question how do you start your day i start my day with a dose of joel osteen joel osteen is a tele evangelist um but i like the way he mixes scripture with positive thinking 
Um, so I start off with, uh, uh, mindfully with that. Perfect. Next question. Name three people that inspire you. I think uh, Martin, uh, Martin Nelson and uh, Mother Teresa. But there are so many people in my life who've inspired me. And as I say, who've you know lifted me to get me to where I am today. Was that two people? Wait, Martin Nelson and Teresa? Um, I never heard, sorry. Mother, Mother Teresa. Teresa. Okay, three, so we need one so more. So Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela yeah. and Mother Teresa. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Three, you said. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I couldn't hear it properly. All right, perfect. I got a bit confused there. All right, next. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Um, as I say, lots of advice. Uh, some wanted, some unwanted. I think the best advice for me that I've ever uh, received is, you know, um, it, it's to never give up. It's to keep going. That's how things change, is if we keep going. We stick our head above the parapet and dare to be different, dare to dream. Perfect. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to a charitable cause, what would you pick? Gosh, I think um, I, I absolutely believe in a life of service. I would do this job for free, um, you know, and I hope to continue to do it. But access to justice, you know, public legal education, I absolutely believe in the power of legal rights. Um, and as I say, what's the point of legal rights if you don't know what they are? So a charitable cause that everybody should be able to exercise their rights. Perfect. As well as, you know, to be able to eat, to have a house and so forth. Sorry, go on. No, it's okay. Final two questions. What's the kindest thing that somebody has ever done for you? Lifters like lifted me up as they've climbed. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. And last one. One thing that people don't know about you. Oh, um, that's difficult because I think somebody's written my whole life story on Wikipedia. Uh, one thing people don't know about me. <laughs> um, gosh, uh, you've got me there. Yeah, gosh, I'm not. I, I, you probably should say what's one thing you're, people don't know about you that you're willing to share. Um, I don't know, because I, as I say, I think my life has become an open book. Um, I don't know. Maybe, uh, gosh, I don't know. Because uh, I think they know everything. <laughs> Well, that's a good one as well, because when I was younger, my favourite colour was yellow. But now I think it's kind of grey or something. Oh, that's that's one thing. So, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, true, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Great. <laughs> so um, that's that. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today, Stephanie. I feel like you've got a very, um, a very, very positive attitude about you, that determination, that positivity that you exude. And um, I definitely felt that as I've spoken with you today. So very, very, very much appreciate you speaking with us today. Very, very much appreciate all the advice, your stories, the laughs, everything that you shared with us today. It's been amazing. To wrap up, do you have any um, any last words in closing remarks? Well, I just, my closing remarks um, uh, is that, you know, as I say, well, firstly, thank you very much for, uh, for you know, reaching out and for interviewing me. Um, I want to say and impress upon everybody who's listening, when I was asked a question at Hustings as to, and I was one of four, and I was asked the question, if you are successfully elected as Deputy Vice President, how will you promote equality, diversity and inclusion? And uh, thinking about it, my answer was to be visible, to be a role model. Um, you know, uh, uh, the line lifters we climb was very much relevant in history um, for another cause. It remains true and relevant today. Um, there is no point me being in this space 
if I'm not prepared to be visible, if I'm not prepared to lift as I climb. But I absolutely believe whose life might I change? Who might I inspire? And that is why we do everything we do, because we absolutely believe in bringing people up behind us. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for having me uh, uh, on your show. Thank you. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, if anybody was to keep up with to date with the Law Society, maybe yourself, um, what's the best way in which they can do that? Absolutely. So the Law Society can be found on uh, LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, Facebook and other places. I can be found on LinkedIn on under i.stephanieboyce. So please do follow me. Uh, and also on Twitter at, at, at boyc one um, So it's i.stephanieboyce, but no E and the number one instead of the E. Um, so absolutely. Perfect. And take a look at the Law Society's website, lawsociety.org.uk. Great. Great. All right. That's that. Thank you so much for your time today, Stephanie, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. And that was I, Stephanie Boyce. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's very, very much appreciated. If you'd like to support us, then please do subscribe and follow us wherever it is you're listening to this right now. And let us know what you thought about this episode, any key takeaways you had. Very inspiring, very determined person. And I'm sure that there's a lot that we can draw from this conversation with I, Stephanie Boyce. As always, we'll be releasing our new podcast episode next week, Tuesday, and then the YouTube video will follow later on in the week. So if you'd like to see some previews from the upcoming episode, then please do follow us on our social channels and we'll be uploading previews in the coming days. But that's that for now. Thank you so much for tuning in. That was I, Stephanie Brace. This is 1000 Voices. And until next week, we're out.